university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is the Deconstruction Workers. And today, number one, we are in Colorado and about to be hit with the bomb cyclone, a snowstorm of the century. So apparently, we, we shall see. Colorado weather is often more overblown than it turns out to be. But we're coming to you from a snowy Colorado Springs this morning. And with me on the line is Jonathan Alexandratos. Jonathan is a returning deconstruction worker from the Queensboro Community College. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I am not uh, expecting a bomb cyclone for once. Me being in New York City, we're actually getting sun and relatively warm weather. So my heart goes out to you, my friend. Yeah, well, welcome to March in Colorado. <laughs> people often yes. say, oh, it's March, it's heading towards spring. And people in Colorado just laugh because winter just started. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it doesn't snow in Colorado in November and December. It waits until the end of February and then it'll snow through like June. So it's uh, good times. Uh, tough stock you guys are made of. That's right. So today we are going to be talking about a topic that Jonathan and I spent a lot of time talking about at conferences, which is nostalgia. This idea of us really loving things from our past, which is probably almost certainly going to lead us into a conversation about the difference between a reboot and a remake and a revival. We may talk a little bit about things that are old becoming new again and why we are so attached to the things from our childhoods. Does that sound about what we discussed? That nails it. Yeah. Definitely. To sort of kick this off, we should probably, as we often do, start with a definition of our terminology. What do we mean when we say a reboot or a remake or a revival? Because those three things are not the same. They all sort of stem from the same place of nostalgia, but they're not the same thing. Right. If we start with reboot and remake, we can sort of rope in revival in a second. But I think that with the reboot, it almost seems like there's an attempt to either refresh material, add to it, make a new timeline, you know, do things like that. With a remake, it seems like the goal is really to honor some source material in the sense of doing a one-to-one -one translation almost. I mean, when I think remake, I think Psycho. When I think reboot, I think Star Trek 2009. Yeah, you come at it from a much more generous place than I do. <laughs> <laughs> when I think of reboots and remakes, the first thing I think of is no one in Hollywood has any new ideas. Mm. And 
it is much easier to take a thing that has been successful in the past and try to repackage it for a new group of consumers than it is to think of something yourself. And if you're strategic about it, the reboot or the remake serve very different functions. The audiences for those two things, I think, are oftentimes really different. If you think of a reboot being something like Transformers, which has rebooted itself, I don't know, 15 times since 1984, <laughs> each time intending to draw in a brand new audience. I would argue that the audience for the Michael Bay Transformers was specifically not the audience for G1 1984 Transformers. Actually, it feels very much like that reboot was specifically designed to alienate that original audience. Well, I mean, I was certainly alienated by it. But I mean, I think that, yes, in the broad sense, for me, you could probably take all movies, right, including original stories and reboots and remakes. And I I don't know. I feel like you would almost find the same cross-section of good and bad in, in all of those. Sometimes the reboot has a lot of value, especially when a creator is reflecting upon a source text that maybe didn't go as deep as a creator would want or as a fan would want. And so then that fan becomes a creator and that fan then creates the reboot that does reach farther, but it just, it just uses those characters to do it. I mean, I'm thinking of the shared fandom that I know we both have, My Little Pony. And if you've got a creator there looking at the source text of that, okay, it certainly captured its audience, mainly through toys, but also obviously through the show. And from there, that fan becomes creator. Then creator uses those characters to really reach for something, something deeper than that original. Transformers didn't do that, but but something like My Little Pony, I think, did. My categorization, though, is no judgment on the quality or value. Okay. My categorization is on the motivation. Okay. Yes, My Little Pony is categorically better under Lauren Faust than it was in 1984. I mm-hmm. would argue that Transformers has had several reboots that were actually really very good. Mm-hmm. Robots in Disguise was really very good. Beast Machines. Beast, well, Beast Wars was really good. Beast Machines was kind of garbage. But I, dis- I totally disagree with really? that. Really? I totally You are going to be the first person to advocate for Beast Machines? Absolutely. Now, sorry, excuse me, listeners. <laughs> we have to have another conversation before we can Is move there on. a sound effect you can play for this? I mean, like, so listen, Beast Machines, I think, has a ton to say about spirituality, about religion, about transcendence. It is so meaningful that at the end of that, Optimus Primal's last line of the show is, don't transform, transcend. I mean, the whole concept to me is like, wait, what? This gives me so much to think about. Yeah, no, Beast Machines is great. That hurts a very specific part of my soul. That's fine. Um, Listen, that just means that I won't have any competition on eBay when I'm buying up all the action figures. No, I'm guessing you probably (laughs) won't. (laughs) Uh, Beast Wars to me was the first time that the franchise decided it was going to get serious. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. While I am obviously a huge fan of the first iteration of Transformers, mm-hmm. it was not a serious show. It oftentimes had right. a serious message to the episodes, but the show in and of itself wasn't very serious. And when it tried to get serious towards the end is when the show failed. Yes. The reboot into Beast Wars allowed them to take a whole new group of characters and go in a whole different direction, which was fantastic. Yeah, Beast definitely. Machines always read to me exactly as I said at the outset, which is it seemed to me like a total cash grab. It was, Ah. it seemed to me very much designed to clear the shelves of the old line of toys and to introduce a new line of toys. It felt very meta to me in a way that I found unpleasant. But I mean, it it introduces characters very slowly. Marv Wolfman wrote one of the greatest episodes of Beast Machine, and you don't get that all-at-once onslaught of new characters. It takes Rat Trap six episodes to figure out how to transform. It's really given you something to think about there. But that's also, that's not to disagree with your point on Beast Wars. I am also a fan of that, and I also agree that that was a reach for something serious. I guess my question then would be, you know, if we think about Beast Wars, what would Beast Wars look like if it were a remake instead of a reboot? So if Beast Wars was a remake of original G1, then it would necessarily have most, if not all, of the same characters. And right. I think this is really where, for me, the line gets drawn, is right. a reboot allows for you to bring in a whole bunch of new things and really sort of take the core concept, but take it in a different direction. Uh A remake is an attempt to start over from the same starting point of the original thing. So for example, we talked about you and I offline talked about the film true grit. Yes. True Grit is a is a straight up remake of mm-hmm. the original John Wayne film. Mm-hmm. In that it's the exact same characters, it's the exact same premise. There are some minor plot point differences that make the new version of True Grit infinitely better than the old version. But Agreed. but essentially it's the same film. Yeah. Ocean's 11. Ocean's 11 yeah. is basically the exact same film. Again, yeah. minor plot point differences, but essentially the exact same film. Those are remakes, not reboots. Right. It's almost shot for shot the exact same film about 50 years apart. The Shining. There have mm-hmm. been several versions of The Shining. The Stanley Kubrick, one directed by Stephen King himself, and mm-hmm. so on. And so those are remakes of the exact same thing. Whereas something like Ghostbusters is a complete reboot. Well, I mean, to Stephen King, though, that's not necessarily true. Like, Stephen King was pretty uh, upset by the Kubrick version, right? I mean, he said Kubrick totally missed the point of everything in his book, and Kubrick tried to depart from the book in in many key ways. So, I don't know. I mean, to say that that's the same... uh, It's a remake in that it begins from the same starting point, and it retains all of the same characters. It goes in a different direction, but it is by definition, a remake. Okay. Yeah, I could, I could see that. Right. You're not focused on a new character. It's the same guy. As opposed to, and here might be a good place to bring in the word revival, as opposed to a revival, which is taking the same characters, the same plot points, and in some way bringing back or fast forwarding the story. For example, Fuller House. There was Fuller Mm. House and now there's Fuller House. But isn't that just a spinoff? But it's not a spinoff. 
it's not a spinoff because it's the or a better example of, of a revival would be the very short run of Gilmore Girls on Netflix. I mean, I guess I just, I, yeah, I guess I could see your, what you're going for. I, I just have t- a tough time plugging the word revival into film and TV because I often, so often think of it in terms of theater, where in that context, it really is, we are taking this play and we're doing it again because theater is temporary and goes away. So, you know, you have the play and then 20 years later, you have the revival. And that, that's sort of how I think of it, like the, the same text just reproduced on stage again with film and TV. Yeah. I see what you're saying about uh, Gilmore girls, but I mean, it's also just an additional season. I, I don't know that there are any rules on how you have to schedule your season. So, I mean, who's to say you can't just do a new season, whatever, a few years into the future. I, I don't know if that for me is a revival. I feel like I'm thinking of it in exactly the same way that you're thinking of it, which okay. is we do a text and then it goes away and then mm-hmm. we wait, Five, ten, mm-hmm. fifteen years, and then we bring it back, and it's the mm-hmm. and it's the exact same text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both the Fuller House and Gilmore Girls, and something like Will and Grace, for example. I think all of those, even by your own terms, qualify as a revival because it is this break, and then we remember we love a thing, and then we bring it back, and it's the exact same thing that we left. I mean, I guess exact same thing. It's not quite the like Fuller House is. Sans Michelle and you know a few of the others. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but as of yeah. today, okay. also sans Lori Laughlin, which, which yeah, is, I know. I, I no have to kidding, throw that right? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Oof, that's another rabbit hole. Yeah, for sure. But with that, it's not like seeing a production of Ragtime or something where nothing has really changed except for directorial vision. That probably would change. With TV, the text is the same in the sense of the characters are the same and sometimes they're even played by the exact same actors. I think in order for it to be a revival, it has to be played by the exact same actors. I think that's yeah, the point. Yeah, okay. All right. I, and I, I could concede that. Yeah, sure. But then the text plot-wise and story-wise has changed. I mean, Fuller House is a lot more, I feel, self-aware than Full House was. I think that that there are a lot more sort of meta jokes, especially in that first season, than Full House had. So I I don't know. Like, I think that that there are subtle changes in tone and sometimes major changes in plot that do kind of move the show in a different direction. Well, sure. And that's not to say that in the revival, every character is either exactly the same or that we don't get more nuance to those characters. For example, in the Gilmore Girls reboot, uh, Rory, who was always a relatively benign character, becomes really unlikable in the, mm. in the, mm-hmm. in the revival of it. Mm-hmm. But the same is true in the theater world as well. You know, mm-hmm. We have one cast and we really like a particular character and then a new mm-hmm. actor comes to it in the revival and all of a sudden it changes the character fundamentally for us. So and, even in a revival, it's not the exact same text. No, yeah, you're right. No, that's true. It, but that change is a little different, I think, in the sense of you are seeing a new actor play that part in a theater production, and then it's the actor, what the actor brings to it or doesn't bring to it that makes us either like or dislike that character more. In TV, like you said, it's the same actor who's playing that part again. It's the character that starts to change, if that makes any sense. No, it does make sense. I might argue, and now all my theater friends are going to be super mad. (laughs) I'll see. But I might argue that the way theater uses the term revival, Mm -hmm. they're actually talking about remakes, but they have used the word revival for 
so long that that is what that term has come to mean. But from within this particular conversation, the way theater uses revival feels very much like remake to me. But I mean, if we break it down, right, revival to live again, that's the sense that theaters use. And, and indeed, that's true because with the play, you have this idea of a closing date and the closing date is, is sort of when that production dies, unless it gets extended. And then you wait a period of time and then the revival is its life again. It's, it's almost resurrection. Well, remake to make again. I mean, you're not necessarily, I don't know that you're making it again from the ground up because you're, you're not rewriting the script. You're not doing that. You are certainly making again certain elements like the set but in a TV show or a movie, in some cases, you, in many cases, I think you are rewriting the script. In fact, you're writing the next chapter. You're, you're writing, you're moving it forward. Theater doesn't do that. True. In television, though, we are also with a finite end point, the last episode of the last season. Yeah. And then we wait a period of time and then those characters live again. We revive them. And mm -hmm. we revive them at the point at which their lives have advanced. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it does take it in a new direction. And we are changing the script, in some cases, changing the flavor of the show. Here I'm thinking of the Connors. Yeah, yeah. Which starts as the Roseanne revival. Mm -hmm. And then we very quickly get rid of Roseanne. And thank you for that. Mm -hmm. But we've revived all of those characters. And we've revived their lives. We've even revived sort of meta in-jokes from within the show. So <laughs> Such as, for example, when Sarah Chalk shows up, which was my favorite thing that ever happened on that show. Mm, because mm -hmm. they brought back both old Becky and new Becky <laughs> and then had them in the same space and mm -hmm. told fans, you process it, mm -hmm. which was masterful. Yeah, and I, I see what you're going for there. And I actually think that this might be a good time to inject the idea of nostalgia into what we're talking about just because it feels like almost the success of any of these texts depends on how much our nostalgia clings to it, how much something like that is able to make us remember with happiness the way it was, but also then appreciate the new way that it's going. And I think that nostalgia accounts for at least some of those emotions. I think nostalgia accounts for most of those emotions. Yeah. Nostalgia is what drives both reboots and revivals. I think remakes Nostalgia only partially drives remakes in that I think the nostalgia point is different. Yeah. That feels very much more to me like let's redo this. And in some cases, let's redo this and do it right. Yeah. In some cases, let's redo this and just make more money off of it. And whatever happens, happens. Mm -hmm. Nostalgia plays less of a role in a remake than it does in a reboot or in a revival. Now would probably be a good time to, just like we did with terms like remake, reboot, and revival, probably establish our kind of working definition for nostalgia. So what is nostalgia? A nostalgia is what happens when we look back on something, whether that's a time or a place or an artifact, an object, a text, when we look back, and I think there's a necessity when we talk about nostalgia to attach, what's the word I want to use? Wistfulness <laughs> it might be mm -hmm. the right word for that. Mm -hmm. Yearning, longing, pining. There's a favorable aspect to nostalgia. I don't think you can have negative nostalgia. I think that becomes something else. Yeah. Uh, I think nostalgia requires sentiment. 
It requires yeah. a happy association. So for me, uh, yeah, when we look back sentimentally into the past and attach good feelings to a person, place, event, object, or text. I would agree with that definition. Now would be a good time for me to read from the Odyssey. I would love for you to read from the Odyssey on this program. It actually relates, and I'm, I'm not the first person to say this. Nicholas Dames, who, who did a translation of the Odyssey, also wrote about this idea of nostalgia in the Odyssey. And here is a quote that I think captures it pretty well from the Odyssey. It goes like this, but we too will drink and feast in the hut and will take delight in each other's wretched sorrows as we remember them. For in after time, a man can even delight in grief, whoever has suffered greatly and wandered far. So this idea that you can find delight coming even from sorrow, not necessarily sorrow, but from sorrow, as long as enough time has passed, because that's sort of what memory does, and also what community kind of does. Because in this example, Odysseus needs another person in order to have that true nostalgia. I'm sure you can have nostalgia on your own, but even so, you do need a text at the very least, probably need to see something that makes you feel that nostalgia. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Nostalgia as community yeah so what do we do with i really want to agree with that definition because i think that there is something valuable within it yeah i wonder though what if so what about the nostalgia that we feel for example i'm sitting here in my office in 2019 as a Mm -hmm. grown adult man i am married i have a child i have a career i have whatever Mm -hmm. there's a part of me that the biggest piece of nostalgia that I have from my childhood is the first girlfriend I had in seventh grade Mm -hmm. that is filled with nothing but fond, happy memories that is filled with nothing, but wasn't that sweet in my memory. She is perfect. There's Mm -hmm. a part of me that would never want to meet the actual person who is alive (laughs) right now because they would never (laughs) compare to the the remembrance that I have of how perfect they were in seventh grade, right? Yeah. And I don't need another person to have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, props to you for finding nostalgia in middle school. That is an era filled with absolutely zero nostalgia (laughs) for me. But that, yeah, I mean, I I wonder, though, if the way that transforms, yes, I think that you can absolutely have that nostalgia alone thinking about it for yourself. But I I then start to wonder if the sort of communion that you're having is, is it between you and that memory of her? So that that sort of person that you've built in your mind does, is that enough to represent sort of another person that you're then talking to or with? I I realize that's, that's a different thing than what I think Homer's going for, because for Homer, it's too people talking in the present about the past. Right. So that is different. And I think that there's room for us to have different versions of nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When we're talking about it in terms of a mediated text, I think it can be a very different thing than fond memories of your own life experiences. I think that's true. Because nostalgia can be blinding. Oh, sure. Especially around textual artifacts. Mm -hmm. One thing that we often talk about, not on this show, but when we all get together at conferences, is how when you look at things that you liked when you were a kid, Mm -hmm. as an adult, oftentimes you wonder, why did I like this so much? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. There's, there's an entire podcast based on this. I'm going to prop them, even though they're not sponsors of the show or anything. It's called Your Inner Child is an Idiot. And this is what they do every week is they go back and they look at things from when they were kids and they decide whether or not, as adults, they're any good. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, the answer is no, they're not. But sometimes they're still great. Sometimes stuff holds up. But but I, I get it. I mean, I, I've done that experiment myself, shockingly good burger doesn't really uh, create as much excitement today as it did when I was a kid. Right. Uh, you know, stuff like that. The, the list could go on and on, but the dark crystal holds up really well. Yeah. Something like Mrs. Doubtfire does not. It's an interesting point though, because so a movie that I hear holds up, although I don't know because I actually didn't see it as a kid. Tragically, I saw it later in life was The Princess Bride, which obviously amazing movie. But to me, I'm appreciating it as an amazing movie from my eyes virtually today. We're going back just a few years now. But for somebody who saw it as a kid and then sees it again, for them, the experience is even more profound. It's probably even better than my experience. I would argue it probably is. Yeah. Yeah, sure. The Princess Bride, to me, is the truest version of what we might call timeless. Yeah. That movie will be great forever. I could see that. Which, to me, makes it one of the best movies ever made. Not Mm -hmm. because internally to the text it is the best movie ever made, although I could argue that in many ways it is, but... Mm -hmm that it will always be the exact same level of great no matter when you enter into that text. It will not age. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and I mean, that's proven by me seeing it with really no context for it in terms of nostalgia and still loving it. I mean, it really, uh, it's really true. But that, again, was not my experience with watching Jingle All the Way with my friends who had never seen it before, right. who, you know, who are just kind of like, what is this? And why are you showing it to me? And even I, when I saw that movie, was kind of like, yeah, this is uh, not as funny as I really remember it being. But I, do, I will always obviously take pleasure in, in the memory of seeing it the first time. But You do lose some elements that made a thing great at the time. Yeah. For example... My all-time favorite video game, I think the greatest video game ever made on Earth, is a game called Dragon's Lair. (laughs) Dragon's Lair, for many people, the only experience you would have had with Dragon's Lair is the, like, 15 seconds of it you get to see on the first episode of the second season of Stranger Things. (laughs) The kids are in the arcade, and they're all gathered around the Dragon's Lair machine. Dragon's Lair was created by... Don Bluth, Don Bluth being the animator of things like The Secret of Nim and All Dogs Go to Heaven and Fievel, an American tale. That's also a Don Bluth film. <laughs> Don Bluth worked with uh, video game producers to create an animated film that was interactive. So you as the player played through the narrative and if you played through the narrative correctly, you got to see the whole movie. Dragon's Lair was the first arcade cabinet that had two screens. So -hmm. it had the screen that the player could see, but then on top of the machine, it had a screen that faced out into the arcade so Mm -hmm. that everyone could gather around and watch the top screen so that they could watch the movie along with the player. It's an amazing game. It's fantastic. Yeah. 
that cabinet basically doesn't exist anymore. And even if that cabinet did exist, the arcade environment in which that cabinet lived doesn't exist anymore. So right. the experience that I had of being 10, 11, 12 years old and dropping my entire allowance every single week into that machine in order to see the whole movie, which by the way, no child ever did. In <laughs> Stranger Things, they are playing through the final scene of that game, which was enough for me to call BS on the entire episode, <laughs> 30 seconds into the episode, because no kid ever got that far. That's a lie. Um, yeah. It made me really angry. I was like, this is a lie. That never yeah. <laughs> So, but having that experience is a thing we won't ever have again. And so that gets stripped away from the game when I, for example, I have a 100% arcade accurate version of that game on my phone, because that's where we are in 2019. Right. I have, I have a 100% arcade accurate version of that game on my phone and my daughter plays it and loves it. And I gave it to my brother and he played it and loved it, mm -hmm. but it's a very different experience. And the nostalgia that I have around that game is partially textual, but it's partially experiential. And that's the piece of it that I can't share with my family. Right. Cause what you maybe really want, which is probably the same thing I really want is to be back in that body, in those shoes, in that environment, with everything you know around you immersed in it, again, with the mindset that you had before you necessarily knew about paying bills or iPhones or right. anything of any other thing that life would throw at you. You're bringing up something interesting, though, when you, you talk about the cabinet, because now we're talking about the material culture that goes along with nostalgia. So like when Star Wars put out the Kenner you know, figures in, in 77, 78, those figures built off of the adventure people and, and all that stuff, they kind of landed as these new objects that really embodied a, a film that captured the imagination of audiences everywhere. Now Hasbro is reviving or remaking or rebooting, whatever you want to call them, those exact figures so that you can go into a store very soon. They're not out yet, but very soon and get that exact look on a card that is there to replicate that exact card from then, the only difference is it'll add in Grand Moff Tarkin. That's the only addition. But all the other figures will be figures that were actually made at that time. However, I can't imagine anybody buying those figures and truly feeling exactly like they did in a Toys R Us back then, where the toys were stacked floor to ceiling and Toys R Us existed in the U.S., right? And I won't get that same experience when I'm going to Target for toilet paper and I happen to go into the toy aisle and go, oh, cool, Star Wars figures that look, you know, like they did in the 70s. That's, that's, that's cool. You know, it's great, but, and I, I will buy them. But the fan community that I've seen on Facebook and Facebook groups and stuff like that, the, the prevailing thought has, has kind of been from people I've read, WTF. You know, like, I, I, don't, I don't know why we're doing this again. Let's pause here. We'll sure. come back in two and two, and we'll return to that thought. Have you ever been reading through a stack of comics and thought, maybe I should see what the Sarkham Asylum game is all about? Or been playing Marvel vs. Capcom and felt like you were at a real disadvantage since you didn't know who half the characters were? Well, Play Comics is the show for you. I'm Chris, and each episode we take a look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material. 
to whether you know the comics and want to know how all these games work, or you know the games and want to find out where all this craziness came from, go check out Play Comics at playcomics.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Did you know that the Deconstruction Workers podcast has a Patreon page? Well, we do. We have a Patreon page. It is www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. You can donate as little as $1 a month towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So click on over to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW and pledge your support if you enjoy what you're hearing. Now, back to the show. So we were talking about reaction figures. Right. Those Star Wars figures that will be coming out from Hasbro will have that look. And there is the attempt there to, to trigger that nostalgia. But I just don't know if it'll be uh, as successful. Or at least I don't know if the feeling of nostalgia that may occur will ever really capture the feeling of seeing those figures when they were new. I feel like, what if we took the original line and actually made it more inclusive of all these great characters that have come out in the Star Wars universe since then, that feels really good. But when we're just sort of doing the same characters in the same style with the same articulation, that I think doesn't excite me as much. I mean, it's sort of the effect of let's make a movie about the 1950s, but we're not going to talk about segregation because it's going to seem really, it's going to seem great, rose-colored glasses and all that stuff. And it's like, well, you know, it, it really, the 50s had their issues. And, and of course, I don't mean to compare 70s action figures to the evil that is segregation. <laughs> But I do mean to... His name is Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H. <laughs> I know. I'm going to get tons of mail about that. No, I am not doing that. That is not, that is not at all my point. All I mean to say is that when we decide to remake something, I think we would be wise to consider whatever the, the medium is, that perhaps we departed from the original because the original had problems. Yes. There's also, though, before we move on from reaction. Yeah. So reaction, for those of you who don't know, reaction is a line of toys that's made by Funko. Funko, for most people, Funko is the company that makes pops, the little bobbleheads that you see of basically every fictional character in existence at this point. You see them all over Hot Topic and in Target now and Walmart and wherever. They're all over the place. Well, they also make a line of action figures based on all kinds of movie properties and TV properties and whatever. So, for example, I have two different versions of Lilu from The Fifth Element. Two different action figures. And they're done on action figure cards in blisters with these action figures that look like the 1977 Kenner Star Wars action figures. They do them for all kinds of stuff. Those are not the reactions I want to talk about right here. Because I, as you know, we've talked about this, I paid well over $200 <laughs> for a complete set. And by complete set, I mean seven figures mm -hmm. of reaction dark crystal action figures. They are very lovely. There are four smaller figures that are on cards in blister packs. One of Jen, one of Kira and Fizzgig, one of 
Agra, and one of the Chamberlain. Those are all on cards. And then there are three larger action figures. One of Ursal the Chanter that comes in a box. One of the Gartham that comes in a much bigger box. That was a Toys R Us exclusive. And one of Jen on a Landstrider, which was only available at San Diego Comic-Con. And that is the figure I paid a ridiculous <laughs> amount of money to get. Because I am a Dark Crystal nerd and I am a completionist. And those two things going together are our problem. So <laughs> I have this complete line of Dark Crystal action figures that when I was a child... I would have probably killed people and ate them in order to have these figures. They did not exist. And if you've listened to the show for a long time, you know that Dark Crystal is literally my all-time favorite film. I, it is, to me, the very embodiment of nostalgia, of that feeling of attachment to a text I talked last season about how on my birthday it happened to also fall on the anniversary of the film and I rented out an entire movie theater and force marched all my friends <laughs> to come and watch it with me. And so the fact that these toys didn't exist when I was a kid and then reaction made them and not only made them, but made them using what would have been the packaging at the time because there was a plan to release action figures. They just never came out. So they used all the all of what would have been the original packaging, and that was designed specifically for me. Right. It couldn't have been more specifically designed for me if they had called me and been like, how should we do these? Right, right. And, and I think those figures are fascinating. They look great, but they also have this story that goes along with them. And you talked about that story, not just from your fandom, but also learning about them as prototypes. Like there was a point in your life where you learned that, oh, they plan to do this. And then there was a point in your life where you probably very soon after that realized, oh yeah, I can never, I could probably never get these because what exists is prototypes and that's it. Blake Wright gets into this in his book, uh, The Toys That Time Forgot, and talks about that action figure line specifically. And says once those figures came out in mass, there was all of a sudden not just the nostalgia working, but also this great sense of opportunity. I never, I knew this was going to happen. I never thought it would, or I always thought it would be inaccessible to me. Now it's totally accessible to me. So you, the $200 you spent is far cheaper than the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars you would have to spend in order to get the one existing prototype from the proposed line. So in that sense, it's a bargain. Well, that's how I explained it to my wife. <laughs> in that sense, it's a bargain. Yeah. Because like, for me, that period of time, the period of time of pining and discovering information, that is very important because, I mean, Cracker Jack boxes have had prizes in them forever. But I mean, how many people do you hear about going nuts today over getting a Cracker Jack box to get the prize out of it, even though the prizes are probably a little worse than maybe they used to be. But like, that's not really something that captures our interest as much as, oh my God, these, these dark crystal figures are out again and they look just like they were supposed to. And I've spent so much time thinking about this. I'm going to buy them. We need that we need that break, um, which sort of makes me wonder about kind of what the next, you know, sort of hot thing will be, like what's been missing for a while that we uh, that we kind of want back. I kind of hope it's cereal box toys, but that's a different issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not really, because there is a very certain amount of nostalgia of 
getting the toy out of the cereal box. Sure. Yeah. I'd be very interested to know kind of like from, and I, I have no idea how to do this myself because I'm not qualified, but like from a psychological standpoint, what really is it? And this could even be a, a cultural thing. What is it that makes us have that craving? I mean, it, it very much strikes me that the term we use the most for action figures that we're hunting and hunting and hunting is grail. Like we reference yes. the Holy grail so often. Uh, I mean, is the Holy grail the, the first sort of Christian uh, Western ish example of nostalgia? Like do, does everybody just want to go back to quote unquote, the time of Christ? Because honestly that kind of seems awful, but I mean, the Holy grail seems great, you know, but I wonder about what that's all about from a from a cultural and maybe psychological standpoint. That is the term that gets used particularly among toy collectors and comic book collectors. For example, a friend of mine recently, and I'm not going to out him, but recently made a purchase of a comic book that he had been searching for for like 20 years. Mm -hmm. It was Incredible Hulk number 200. 180, sorry, not 200, which is a, an iconic book because it's the very first appearance of Wolverine. Mm -hmm. And people really, really are after this book. A friend of his passed away. He bought his comic collection from his wife for about 200 bucks, got a box of comics. In that box was a Incredible Hulk. He kind of flipped out. He sent it off to CGC, which is the comic book grading company. They sent it back. It's a 9.8. Mm-hmm. 9.8 out of 10. A 9.8 out of 10 is basically it just came out of the factory. Mm -hmm. That comic is worth $13,000. It is a holy grail within comic book collecting, and he found it. He is Parzival. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> he found it on his own by himself. He is Parzival. And that's, that's the first appearance of Wolverine that you're talking about. Yes. That's incredible. That's an inc like who wouldn't love to discover a gem like that? I mean, you're absolutely right. That's <laughs> that's awesome. And and we so we talk about that, you know, uh, the USS Flag. Yeah. For GI Joe collectors sure. or uh an inbox Fortress Maximus for Transformers collectors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are these holy grails that were so difficult to get when you were a child. Mm -hmm. When you were a child, the USS Flag is the aircraft carrier. Yeah for G.I. Joe. It was it is six feet long. It's enormous. Yeah. And at the time that it was being collected, it would it would have cost the equivalent today of what? I think the the SRP on it when it came out was like ninety nine, I think I think is what it was. But people who even people who bought it then, it had so many moving parts to it that, that there's it, it, I mean it's so hard to preserve the whole thing. Apparently, fellow deconstruction worker Dan Yesbick always tells me that out in St. Louis they come up fairly often, but you know, I, I don't live there, unfortunately, so I can't take advantage of this. Also, fellow deconstruction worker Rick Stevens keeps saying he would buy one because he sees them every so often, but he said he would have to get rid of his coffee table because <laughs> yes. where are you going to put <laughs> Seriously. it if you buy And then, it? do you really want to use the USS flag as a coffee table? I do not. Right. There are these grail items that seem unattainable. Then when they suddenly are, that is 
that is deeply satisfying. May, I mean, this could very well be the same drive that gets us to play the lottery or, or you know, watch stuff like American Pickers or Storage Wars. Like, you know, the odds that you're actually going to have that happen to you, fairly slim, but the chance that it might happen is profound. And, and that's very, very attractive. So if, you know, the lottery is sort of the general version of that, like, oh, money is a thing we all want. So, okay, I'll put a dollar down on my ticket. I could walk away with a million. But, you know, if I if I get a blind bag or, or a blind box of an action figure, then I, I have that chance again to maybe get the rare one. If I if I happen to stumble upon a long box of comics and I've never seen this long box of comics before, maybe as I'm flipping through them, Incredible Hulk 180 and 181 will come out. That's sort of the same, let's roll the dice and see what happens kind of attitude. And that plus nostalgia is kind of a lethal mix almost. But it's also sort of the fun of collecting comic books currently as well, because you never know what's going to blow up. For example, when I started collecting the Umbrella Academy, mm-hmm. nobody had heard of it. Yep. Zero people. The only people who knew of the Umbrella Academy when it very first came out were people who were fans of My Chemical Romance. Yeah, because, which I am. So, yes. <laughs> right. So you, there, were, there was this small number of people who knew, oh, Space Boy... <laughs> was actually on the side of the tour bus and is part of the liner notes and gets gets his start sort of there and, and moves on and, and whatever. But when I started collecting it, no one was really collecting it. And so I have a very, very nice, full, complete set of both runs, both the, the original Apocalypse Suite and Dallas. Sure. And I had them graded and whatever and they just have been sitting in a box for a really long time and then netflix decides to make a television program which by the way is very good uh i could do a whole show about how good umbrella academy is but when it comes out the price of those comics skyrockets right and gabriel ba happened to be at uh comic-con that a buddy of mine went to and so I gave him some books and he had them signed for me and that increases the value exponentially and now those same comics that for me were have a nostalgia about them I was in from the beginning which we could do an entire show about mm-hmm. what it means for us psychologically to be in from the beginning I was in from the beginning those comics are a uh, an are a lottery again as you said yeah you know, yeah. Who knew that tiny comic book series that really nobody was reading would blow up into this amazing cultural thing that now everyone is kind of a part of, but kind of not because they didn't read the comics and I did. And even if they did read the comics, they didn't read them from the beginning. Like, I yeah, did. exactly. And, and I mean, I feel that way in action figures all the time when like Marvel Legends makes me feel this way. Like when it, for the period of time I was buying like every Marvel Legends figure as they came out. Now I still buy a ton of them, but not, not every single one, but the figures that I'll look up on eBay that are just, you know, skyrocketing in, in value, even from like the recent Hasbro Marvel Legends line, I'm kind of sometimes baffled by that. I'm a little bit like, wait, why, why that figure? Because we are saying with Umbrella Academy, we've got this this moment, this this show. But there are even some some times where I'll look at a, an action figure and just kind of be like, huh, that blew up. Well, that's weird. And you know, for whatever reason, it, it did. 
it feels like we're having two different conversations now, but we're not. It feels like we're talking about price and then we're talking about nostalgia, but those two things are united by the idea of value. So there's sentimental value and, and then financial value, but, but this idea, idea of value. What does it mean when something has value? And what does it mean for somebody to then say, I have this thing that is of value in some way, shape or form, whether it be sentimental or financial? Does one's status then become greater? Like if I say, oh, I have, you know, the first appearance of Wolverine and people go, "Ooh, ah, that's, that's incredible. Well, then all of a sudden I feel a little bit bigger and that's cool. Maybe I don't want to sell it because I like that feeling. On the sentimental side of things, I I mean, I have plenty of toys and, and just pop culture artifacts that are totally worthless. But for me to tell people, oh, I have this, then there's still that sense of like, oh, I remember that. Wow, you still have yours? That's amazing. And then there's a bit of an inflation there, but also, you know, on, on the kinder side, a, a connection too. Uh, because absolutely, and that, that's important. This is the difference between an autograph and a signature. Yeah. So when you go to conventions, lots and lots of people get signatures on things. Signatures are designed to add value. That's very different than getting someone's autograph because there is a, a an emotional cultural connection to that. I'm not getting you to sign a thing because it increases the value of the thing. I'm getting you to sign a thing because it is proof that I have met you and that I have something to remember that meeting by and that I can then emotionally connect to it. For example, two years ago at a Comic-Con here in Colorado Springs, I met Amy Jo Johnson. Cool. Amy Jo Johnson, For those of you who don't know, she's the original Pink Power Ranger. She was on Felicity. Uh, She's she's done a whole bunch of stuff. And I stood in line to meet her, and every single person who went up to talk to her was talking to her about Power Rangers. They just really wanted to talk to her about being the Pink Power Ranger. Well, I showed up with my old, very beaten-up VHS copy of a film called Sweetwater, Mm. which I'm guessing... I'm one of maybe five people on earth. (laughs) But when I was in college, I wore that tape out. (laughs) I've seen that movie hundreds of times and I'm not even exaggerating. And I brought it up to her and I said, you know, I understand you're here to talk about power Rangers and that's cool. Whatever. I just wanted you to know, I love this movie and I loved it so much that I broke this tape. That's how much (laughs) I watched this film. And I got her to autograph it and she stopped her whole line to talk to me for like 15 minutes about the film Sweetwater and about her work on that film and singing the songs and meeting Nancy Nevins and all this stuff about the film. And we we had a connection, a nostalgic connection, bringing this all the way back full circle, about a thing she wasn't there to talk about and probably didn't expect anyone to bring up. Yeah, I know? think that's that's a beautiful and, and amazing experience. And it's actually triggering a little bit of a catharsis for me because uh, one of the things that I tend to wonder about myself, because I know we have this discussion a lot, is I am pretty much in every technical sense absolutely worthless as a collector. I, I, I open stuff, <laughs> I, I tear it apart, I bend, I crease, I, all, I am so 
useless. Like, do not give me anything that is worth a ton <laughs> because in my hands, it'll just fall apart. But the question then comes, why am I like this? So the way we're talking about it, it seems like what is important to me is to be able to preserve my interaction with the thing on the thing. So when I crease a book or, or when I, when I bend the, the cover, when I bend the spine of a paperback and I put it on the shelf, I finish the book. I love the book. I can look at that crease and I can go, Oh yeah, that's right. I love that book so much. I carry it with me everywhere. When I see action figures that I have that are a little paint chipped in places, cause I just stick them in my back pocket and take them to bars or whatever. It's like, yes, that I can, I now not only have the toy that I love, but I have the memory that I love and it's encased right there in that little flaw that happened because I loved it that much and I continue to love it that much. Now, that's not to say I don't have stuff mint in box and all that stuff. I, I do. But I think the things that really matter more to me are the damaged goods. I, I, and I think it's because in the damage, I've preserved the memory. And to me, that's profound. And you today, Chris, have helped me to unearth this deep psychological need that I have which probably will then unravel the rest of my being. But hey, you know what? You have a bomb cyclone coming up. You're not doing anything better. So let's, let's go. <laughs> but I think for me, I, and here's where I think we can come together on this, because for me, I think I come at the way I collect in the exact same way, which is I loved the hell out of my toys when I was yeah. a kid. I took them everywhere. I, I played with them when I wasn't supposed to. I always, I, but from the time I was 10 until I was 14, I never went anywhere without multiple transformers on my person at all times, Yeah, which is why as an adult, it's so important to me to collect everything mint in sealed box because that is the thing I never had when I was a kid. Because the second I got it, I destroyed it. The second I got it, I ripped it open and I played with it and I had so much love for it. And that's why now as an adult, I feel this intense necessity to preserve the thing as it is right. so that there's some record of this thing existing as it is. Yeah. And I can I can totally see that. I can totally appreciate that. I, I guess that maybe sort of in my in my need to still have multiple toys on me at all times, which I do. I mean, if you reach into my coat pocket right now, you could pull out two toys. I can tell you that as a fact. And I'm about to teach a college class. So like this idea of preserving really the childhood through through the action of of damage and the action of wear kind of makes me feel really good. But I also can appreciate this idea of, oh, I didn't, I, I didn't have that, so now I'm going to, and I'm going to get it in this way. And I think that's very cool. I think it comes from the historian in me. Yeah. My favorite places, both as a kid and as an adult, have always been museums. Yeah. I love museums. I love walking through museums. I love seeing things preserved. And so, yeah, I oftentimes think of my collection as archival. Yeah. It is. So I think we've hit that point that we always get to, which is, you know, at the end of the day, nostalgia, rebooks, remakes, revivals, whatever we want to call them, nostalgia, so what? What I'm realizing now, and I think I can only realize this after we've had this conversation about it, is that what we're really reaching back for is ourselves, some piece of ourselves or some piece of our desires. And I think that nostalgia 
is a physical, often physical vessel that kind of allows us to have that, or at least a piece of that. And we can kind of in that process, forget the bad stuff that may have clouded our minds at the, at the time. And we can just remember this one good thing and let it be purely good, which so few things are. And I think that that more than anything lends an incredible weight to nostalgia. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. I would add we as human beings have a necessity to attach fondness to a particular subset of our memories in order to remind ourselves in the dark times that there are good times. There are things that we love. There are things that we have always loved and we like reminders of those things. So we like when they revive a television show that made us feel great. We like when they remake a movie we loved and then we get to experience it all over again in a slightly different way. We like when they take a text that we have attachment to and repackage it for us. And then we also kind of hate that (laughs) because we want the thing the way we had it. And the way I had it is right, and the way you are trying to have it right now is wrong, which has very little to do with the text and everything to do with us. Sure. Uh, the idea of Christmas will always be better than Christmas itself. Like once you open the presents, you're, you've kind of <laughs> right. you've kind of done the thing. But the expectations and the lead up, yeah, that's that's where it is. My Transformers is real, and your Transformers is garbage. You know because because because. I, Ultimately, because I am good and you, you are garbage. You know, that's the a whole real meaning show. of today's episode. <laughs> why I suck. <laughs> oh, the real, no, the real meaning of, the ep- of today's episode, why I am awesome and why all the rest of you suck. Of course. That's of course, for more, follow us on Facebook if you're uh, especially into punishment <laughs> and berating. <laughs> for Jonathan Alexandrados, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. This has been the Deconstruction Workers. Thanks for joining me as usual, John. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk to you in two weeks. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.